I want to welcome everyone here in the room and online. Welcome to Clear Creek. I'm Josh, one of the ministers, and if I haven't had a chance to say it to you personally, uh, welcome. We love you. We're so glad that we get to celebrate Jesus together. And if you're a guest, stick around. Let us get to know you after our gathering. It's time to get into the end of the beginning. Are you ready? This is part 11 and the last part in the book of Revelation. But as we will see in just a moment, this is simply the beginning of eternity and the story we get to enjoy with God. So if you've not been with us for a few weeks, let me give you just a real quick recap of where we've been so you kind of get the weight of where we are this this morning and in this moment. John, an apostle of Jesus, he's one of the twelve. He's now an old man, probably in his 80s, maybe even his 90s. He is writing to seven actual churches that we could go back and look at where they were in history. And he's writing to them from an island called Patmos. It's in the middle of the Aegean Sea off the coast of modern-day Turkey. He has been put there because he would not bow down, literally bow down, and worship the emperor of Rome. And because he would not worship Rome or its emperor, they said, we're going to put you out where you can do no more harm. And so they think this is the end of the story for John, never knowing that Rome would fall. But here, 2,000 years later, the words written on that island would be blessing people around the world. By the way, who won, Caesar or God? Amen. And so it is on the island that John receives a revelation or a vision from Jesus. Jesus shows up. By the way, how cool would that be? He's there in worship. Jesus shows up and begins to give John a vision. And he says, John, write this down so that the churches in Asia and the church throughout history may be blessed to know what is to come. Now, he uses a lot of imagery to describe what's going to happen. It's called apocalyptic imagery. And this is apocalyptic language. It would be, if we went to a bookstore, it would be in the apocalyptic section. You say, how do we know that's what's going on here, Josh? Well, here's why. John himself tells us that's what this is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just go back, dip our toes at the beginning. It says, the revelation from Jesus which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And as we said from day one, revelation means apocalypse. And by the way, this means that apocalypse does not mean end of the world, bombs falling. Apocalypse means unveiling or revealing or revelation. It's the idea that Jesus is on the stage and there's this giant velvet curtain that begins to raise and it's the revealing of the grandeur of God and the future that God will bring about. And so then he begins to walk us through all these wild images of what will happen. And some of them are debated. And I've tried my best to be very clear on the places that we don't always agree. That good, Bible-believing Christ followers come to different conclusions on some of the images that we've seen. But don't miss this. The main themes of Revelation are the plain themes of Revelation. And you say, what are those plain things? Let me give them to you right quick. Number one, God wins. Number two, there is evil in this world brought about by our selfishness, our sin. There is a real enemy. His name is Satan. He is not a myth, church. He's not make-believe. God, number three, God honors the choices we make and takes our choices very seriously to follow the beast, to follow the devil, or to follow God. And those are your only two choices. Number four, God will right 
every wrong. He will quarantine evil in the end. Justice will prevail and all things will be made new, which number five leads us to worship. Revelation is a book of worship. If we had time, we would have had another week to go through all the different places of worship. Here's what I'd invite you to do. Read the book, one sitting. It'll take you about 45 minutes to an hour and see the worship of the saints in the midst of struggle and be encouraged to know that God wins. That's the story that we find ourselves in. And now at the end of the end of the book, we find that it's not the end of everything. Rather, this is simply the end of the beginning So let us read now Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters, just a few verses from each. Chapter 21, verse 1 says this, then I, this is John, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. We'll come back to that. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared As a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, by the way, who is seated, it's God, who is seated on the throne, church. He says, I am making everything new. I think we need to pray, don't you? Let's bow. Father, I pray that in this moment you show us the newness that is to come. May it give us simply a taste that whets our appetite for heaven. May we be hungry for that reunion. Give us what we need. Holy Spirit, go before us in this text. Show us what we need to see that we may, as we will read in but just a moment at the end of this beautiful book, say, come Lord Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all those who agreed said, amen. Amen. So let's just kind of talk through this. I want to begin with this, this, this image, really, because some are going to help us understand what we're seeing here. And in some ways, what we're about to see is this weird image. Go ahead and put this up on screen. How many of you have ever seen a kaleidoscope before? Anyone? Yeah, a kaleidoscope. It's basically one image that is being refracted so it looks like different shapes, different colors. It is a moving tapestry all showing us what was once or is basically one image. So I agree with those who say these last two chapters are a kaleidoscopic vision, meaning multiple visions, symbols, images, to help us understand the fullness of what is to come. And no one image is fully capable of helping us grasp the beauty of what is about to take place. And so we're given three of a city, a bride, and a garden in just a moment. But here's the one word that captures the entirety of these two chapters. Are you ready? Here's the one word that I want you to get for today. It's three letters. N-E-W. He is making all things new. And not just some things. He says, I'm making heaven new and earth new. What does that even mean? What is this going to look like, God? By the way, that word new is the Greek word kainos. Kainos. Everyone on the count of three say kainos. One, two, three. Kainos. Now, this word kainos 
doesn't mean like an upgrade or like you're painting over something. It's not like you buy a fixer-upper and you just put paint over all the cracks. Some of you, if you have a cup of coffee and you go to get a refresh because your cup has gone stale, that would not be Kano's new because you're simply getting the same as before. It's just a little bit better. That's not this. Kano's, the newness God promises, is he says... I'm going to strip it down to its bare bones and rebuild this from the ground up. It will be quantitatively different, better, more beautiful than you can imagine. I am making all things new. Now, some people will read that part where it says, and I saw the old earth and the old heaven passing away. Does that mean God's just going to kind of... Is that what's going to happen? Again, I don't, maybe, but I don't believe that's what he's getting at here. I agree with those who say, like the flood with Noah. Do you remember Noah and the flood? Anyone in here remember the little flannel board? So God told Noah to build him an ark. Anyone, right? Some of you are going, that is a weird song. Yes, I know, but you'll remember it now. He says, I'm going to destroy the world with water. But quick question, we've said this before, quick question. What are we standing on right now? The earth. God's destruction of the earth with water was not that he obliterates the planet, but he washed it, he wiped it, he got it back down to its initial state and said, let's start again. That is what he's about to do here in the picture, which is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 is going to tell us this beautiful reality says creation, not just you and me, but all of creation waits in eager expectation for itself will be liberated from its bondage of decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What does that mean? Creation itself will be restored. Here's the thing. If God wins in the end, God is not going to give up part of what he loves or what he made to the enemy. God doesn't just win you and me and get us off the planet before it blows up. For when God wins, he wins everything, including the very creation he formed and said was good in the beginning. It will be good, oh, even better than that. It will be great in the end. And by the way, if you think that God's plan is just to get you off planet, how's it gonna, how are you going to live today? It's all about what you don't do. Don't, don't sin. Avoid what's happening. Circle the wagons. Let's be careful. Let's not do anything bold for God. We just need to hang on till heaven. But if this is God's plan to fix and redeem and restore and do something new, we are not those who cower in fear waiting for the evacuation, but we are those called by God to take the field and, as Jesus told his followers, the very gates of hell that are shut in, cowering, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against you. God is making all things new. How will this look? Let's walk through these three images very briefly this morning. I want you to see this because he's going to fix everything. Oh, one more little detail so you get the full context. Did you notice it said this new heaven and new earth, there is no sea anymore, S-E-A? You say, what's that about? Does God just hate marine life? Like, does he just not like Flipper and all of his friends? By the way, how many of you know the Flipper reference? Anyone over the age of like 20? Yeah? Okay, good, good. You're... Let's keep going then. Remember, the sea is not symbolic of marine life. To the Hebrew mind, the sea is the origin, the place where sin and evil and all that is wicked comes from. It's at the sea in chapter 13 that the devil stands and from the sea calls out the two hideous beasts who harm and lead the world astray. 
But in the new heaven and earth, there will be no more sea. There will be no more wickedness. There will be no more evil. And now God says, let me show you what this will look like. First, it will be a city. Everyone say, a city. A city has walls. We're told that this new city of God will have great big walls. Walls in the ancient world were the thing that most protected you. In other words, this new heaven and new earth will be safe. You do not need to fear what is coming against you. Friends, you will never again wonder about how your children are doing. You will never again be afraid. Get this, you won't need locks on your doors in heaven. You won't need insurance because there is no death or dying there either. Get this, you'll be safe from cancer. You'll be safe from heart disease and heart attacks and car crashes. You'll be safe from enemies and knives in the dark. You'll be safe from natural disasters. This new heaven and new earth will be... (laughs) For all the helicopter parents out there, this will be the bubble wrap place you've always wished this earth could be. It'll be safe. And did you notice the descriptions? It's gold and jewels. Later on in the passage, we read that this city has 12 foundations and they're all gold and jewels and beautiful. Why gold and why jewels? It's God's way of saying everything that is the most beautiful here is simply the concrete for heaven. In other words, heaven... This new heaven and earth, it's the best. Better than you can imagine. It's like, can you imagine something beautiful? It's better. And then there's all these 12s. As you read through the rest of chapter 21, there will be 12 foundations. There will be 12 gates. Each gate made out of a giant pearl. And over the pearly gates, have you heard of pearly gates? It's not one, it's 12, he says. Three on each of the four corners or three on each side, rather. And over the top of them are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. And the 12 apostles' names are on the 12 foundations. Why all these 12s? Because 12, again, symbolizes the people of God. In other words, the city is for you. God is making it for his people. And then 1,200. Did you see this? 1,200 stadia. He'll talk about the size. What's a stadium? Why 1,200? All right, are you ready to geek out? Say yes. We're going to do it anyway, so might as well play along. Here we go. 1,200. You've got 12, meaning for all people. And then 1,000, right? 12,000, excuse me. 12 and then 1,000. 1,000, in the Hebrew mind, if it's 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, thousands are their version of a bajillion. How many are there? A bajillion or a godzillion or whatever number you want to come up with. It's their way of saying there is enough space. It's so big. There's enough space for everyone. But there's actually another little detail in here. He says there is no temple in this heaven. But, but then he gives us some interesting details. He says it's 12,000 by 12,000. If you do the numbers, 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, that is roughly 1.9 million square miles. I know you're thinking, dig, so what? Here's what you need to know. The Roman Empire stretched roughly 1.9 million miles. And God now says, the true kingdom, it sits over the emperor of Rome and all of his glory. You can have the substitute or you can have the real thing. But there's no temple. And instead, he tells us that this place is shaped like a giant cube. By the way, uh, this is a house 
a, a, a box that my daughter, Emma, sort of cut up and made into a house. My son had one as well, and they were real excited about them. We said they've got to get out of their house because they're big. But inside, there's little pictures and stuff. She's made this her own. It's her own space. So she was kind of geeked out that we got to show it this morning. So get your little door. But it's a, it's a shape of a cube. Why a cube? Here's what you need to know. The heavenly dimensions, 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. Does God want us to live in a giant skyscraper? Is that what we're talking about here? To the Jewish person, as soon as they hear the dimensions that it's a giant cube, they'd have thought, oh, wow. You say, what is it, Dave? Let me show you. Here's a picture of a replica of the temple that the Jews would go to in Jerusalem. I have stood in the place where this sits. Right here is the main building. You have two parts in it. In the front, you have the holy place, and in the back, the holy of holies. And as you can see, it's sort of long. The main part is the holy place, but in the very back, the most holy place where God's Ark of the Covenant, the very red hot center of where God said he would reside, this was a sacred space reserved for only one person to go in one time of year for one purpose. Only one person could ever enter into the space of God and live. What shape is the most holy place, church? It's a cube. There is no temple in heaven. Why? Because this new heaven and new earth, all of it is the red hot center where God will be. There will be no place apart from God anymore. You will be as close to God in this part of heaven as you are that part of heaven. You will be with God forever. Is that good news to anyone here today? Man, it's good. So it is a city, but what about the bride? By the way, this is my wife's dress. I pulled it out of storage last night. Whoopee. We're both short, but not that short. Okay, there we go. <laughs> go with me for a moment here. Why a bride? What is it about a bride that's so wonderful? Have you ever seen a groom watch the bride come down the aisle? Some of you, you have pictures of your husband and everyone's watching the bride. You know who I like to watch? It's the groom. You'll get these big, hairy dudes with massive, manly, Timberland kind of beards who otherwise would never wear a suit ever in their life, but they're wearing a monkey suit for that one day. These guys who have never shed a tear for anyone or anything, and they're blubbering like babies. Why? Because they're beloved, no matter how tall or short. Is present. What do you need to know about this? The image of the bride means that you are the beloved of God. Time out. You, at this very moment, are the beautiful bride to God, and He almost blubbers with joy seeing you and the closeness He wants to have with you. Friends, so many of us have a warped view of God inspired by ancient mythology of the gods of the past, not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, yes, hates sin, yes, opposes evil, but guess what? Because of His great love for you, paid for your sins so you could be with Him forever. You are the beloved bride Forever. Now I know, dudes, none of us want to think about wearing the dress. Amen? Uh, okay, I got a couple dudes in here going, uh, uh. So I know it's weird imagery, but what you need to get is simply this. God loves you. Number two, 
You're going to be in the Father's house. Jesus tells us in John 14, I go to what? Do you remember the verse? To prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, if you're King James, it's mansions, right? Better translation is rooms. You say, why? Here's why. In the ancient world, the Jewish men, when they would go and be betrothed, when they would go and they would choose a bride or their father would help them choose the bride, the groom would then go back to his father's house and begin to build onto his father's house his new home. It was called the insula, the oikos, the house. They would build onto it room after room after room, and this space would get bigger and bigger as the grooms, the sons of the father, would marry and bring their brides home. Jesus is saying, I'm going to my daddy's house. I'm building a space just for us that you and I may live together. And when it's done, I'll come and get you. This is why the bride never knew when the husband would return because it was once he finished preparing that he would come home. And do you know how she would know that he was approaching? When he would enter the city, one would blow a trumpet to say he is here. Does this sound familiar to the verbiage we've heard that at the last trumpet, the sky will open, Jesus will come, every knee will bow. Why? Because the king has come, the home is ready. You will have a house. It will be our home. It is for the beloved. It is our home. And then number three, it will be a wedding feast. There will be a party. Any of you like parties? Can I get a yes from anyone? Did you know God likes to party? God enjoys celebration. Our God is not a cosmic stick in the mud. Some of us have a view of God that his idea of fun is zapping people for sins. Like, you did wrong, you did wrong. That's not our God. Our God celebrates and loves life. As many theologians say, your God is the most joyful being in creation. Let's do it this way. Come on. As sea of seers... I mean, I get it. We like to party. Our version of party may be a little more tame. I mean, this is, right? Okay. Just right here. This, this is our dancing. Or excuse me. This is our dancing right here. Okay? Anyone? But there will be a celebration. In the Hebrew world, the wedding feast wasn't a couple hours, but it was a few days. Why? Because they wanted to celebrate the union of the bride and the groom. In heaven, there will be a feast that goes on forever because God celebrates the coming home of his bride. And finally, there will be no more tears. Is that good news? That cancer cannot touch another one of us. That you will not hear the news at 2 a.m. that someone you love has died. Or how about this? There will be no more tears because there will never again in heaven be someone who walks away from the family. There will never again be someone who makes a life-altering, destructive decision. There will be no more tears. Now, now, what does this have to do with the bride? Do you know what this means? For Jesus to be able to wipe away your tears means that he is close enough to reach you forever. You will never be distant from God ever again. And by the way, I know sometimes we know he's close to us, but is it, isn't it true some days we feel distant from God? But you will be closer to him than you've ever been before, and you'll see him face to face. It is a city, it is a bride, and finally, it is a garden. Now, I know this is a pathetic-looking garden right here, but go with me for a moment. A garden? Why a garden? Doesn't this echo back 
to something we saw at the very beginning. How does creation begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. And then he creates man and woman. Where does he place the man, church? In a garden. So now we go back to the way things were supposed to be. Yes, it's a city. God is growing and expanding things. Yes, it is a bride, but it is also a garden. So chapter 22 begins this way. Then the angel showed me the river of life, the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great streets of the city. On each side of the river of life stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month so you never grow hungry. There's always enough. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Real fast, what does it mean that it's a garden? Number one, there is no curse. What is the curse? Genesis chapter 3. You and I, by our rebellion, sin against God, wickedness comes in. The earth is broken and fractured. We are sent out of the garden, out of the presence of God, out of the life-giving place where we can eat from the tree of life. But now... We are told there is no curse, meaning there is no sin. There is none. It's been quarantined and it is gone. And there's a river of life that comes from whom? From the very throne of God. What does this mean? Jesus tells us, I am the way, I am the truth, and what? I am the life. Meaning His life continues to flow through and to each of us. Life lives there, never touched by the sin or death, because the tree of life is there. The tree of life was what Adam and Eve would eat from, and they would live forever, we're told. So in heaven, not only will life flow, life will be given, but there will be no more death. In fact, the life of Jesus is Zoe life. Everyone say, Zoe. Let's try that again. Everyone say, Zoe. Zoe is the abundant life of God. It's not just getting by, but life, abundant, fulfilling. It's not the bios life. Bios is the life you get from your parents that doesn't last after 60, 70, 80, 90 years. You're dead and gone. But the Zoe life, it's forever and ever. Meaning, we will live in the presence of God in a perfect place as the beloved of God forever. Untainted by sin. And the leaves... Heal the nations. The curse brought death, yes. The curse also brought death between people. Isn't it true that we are divided as people? Hey, come on. Anyone else watch the news? Anyone else hear about this little thing called the war in Ukraine? Some of you are going, Diggs, I can't pay attention to that. We've got war in my backyard, in my school, in my yard, or in my workplace, or my family. There's no peace between people. There's no peace between us and nature. Have you heard about the hurricanes of late? There's no peace even with ourselves. Isn't it true that sometimes the place you want peace more than anywhere else is just with yourself, that you don't just feel, ugh, with yourself? And no peace with God? But now we're told that the leaves heal the nations, meaning the peace we want but don't have will be given for all people. City, a bride, a garden. You say, Josh, it sounds so good, almost too good to be true. It almost sounds like a fairy tale. Now, how do all of those beautiful fairy tales we grew up with, it says something like, and they lived, how does it go? Happily ever after, yeah. And then, 
As the music swells, it fades to black, and these two words come up on screen. The end. Are you saying this is how it all ends? And John, through the vision of Jesus, says, no, this is not the end. He says this is just the beginning. This is where life starts. This isn't where it all ends. You will live for a bajillion years. Quick question. Do you guys have anything on your calendar for next Tuesday or next week? Anyone have something on your calendar? Sometime for the next month? Anyone in here have something for the next year maybe? Yeah, probably. What are you planning on doing 1,400,292 years from right now? Because you will be doing something in heaven with God. Is that good news? And you say, boy, it's going to be boring all that time. It won't be boring. Want to know why? Chapter 22, verse 5 tells us that you and I will reign with God forever. We're not just going to live with him, but we will have a responsibility with God. In the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve the responsibility to cultivate the garden, to do stuff, to work, to build That's why it's not just a garden, but notice it's a city. A city is the growth from the garden. In heaven, this new heaven and new earth, you and I will have things to do. This is why I agree with theologian Dallas Willard when he makes this statement. We will be invited in the endlessly ongoing creative work of God. You're not going to be bored. You're going to build. You're not going to just sit around on fluffy clouds. You will run and play and produce and enjoy life. This is why I agree with theologian Anthony Hokum, who asks the question, In heaven, will there be better Beethovens? Will we see better Rembrandts? Will scientists continue to advance in technology? Will architects construct better buildings more attractive to the physical eye? Will there be new enticing adventures in space? Yeah! Yeah! I want to see the Sombrero Galaxy family go on a little one billion trip over and back. I don't know what it'll be like. But I agree with those who say God will take the very best of what is here, wipe all the rest away and from their build into this new heaven and new earth, the things that today captivate us and capture our attention. The taste buds on your tongue will experience flavors you've never dreamt of on earth. The sights with your eyes, the sounds with your ears, it will be more beautiful than ever before. And then, of course, someone's going to ask, as my son did a few weeks ago, we were talking about this. He said, yeah, but dad, what if I sin in heaven and mess it up? And we got to do this all over again. You want some good news? Say yes. Here's the good news. We're not going to have to do this ever again. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. Why? Why is it that you will never sin again? Let me give you two quick reasons for those of you who worry about such things. Number one, sin and the enticement of it will now be quarantined. You and I now know the pain of sin and we will then see the glory of God. We will never be enticed by sin because we will see it for what it is. How many of you, just a little quick question here, how many of you, If you saw a 20-foot-long, giant snake, mouth open, fangs dripping, how many of us would see that and go, "Mm, I just want to snuggle it like a teddy bear? You and I will see sin as vividly and clearly as that, and there will not be one of us who says, I want to get close to it. Instead, number two, you will be in the very presence of goodness, of joy, of love. You will be in the presence of God. 
And as one theologian put it, like a super magnet attracts metal, we will be attracted to God, never again enticing the things that destroyed all of this. And I'm convinced, friends, that Jesus will sit down with every one of you answering every question you have. And you'll be embarrassed when you ask it. You won't be afraid to share this thought or question. And I'm confident that Jesus will look at you and he will say, I know you felt like I was not with you. I was even with you in that moment. And now we're together forever. This is not the end. This is just the beginning, which is why the words of this beautiful book end this way. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Let the one who is thirsty, verse 17, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. In verse 20 and 21, the last words of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, we say. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Final image, you ready? One of our family's favorite books, series that we're reading through right now, is the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis writes this story of sort of an allegory of who God is and who we are and how God works through all things. And there's these four children who go through these adventures in this land called Narnia. And in the last book called The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis writes this scene, and it's the final scene of all things, he says, of these children. All their life in this world has only been the cover and title page. And now at last... They were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And so with those who have gone before us, we say, come, Lord Jesus, if you're in Christ. If you're in Jesus, this is your hope. Stop worrying about the world around you. Yes, pay attention, but don't worry. If you're not in Christ, this is not yet your destination. But as Jesus invites any who are thirsty, come. We now invite you, come.